In November of 1944, at the same time that Hanashenish and Haviva Reich went to their deaths in Europe, the Jewish terrorist group Lehi, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, they issued the following statement. We accuse Lord Moyne and the government he represents with murdering hundreds and thousands of our brethren. We accuse him of seizing our country and looting our possessions. We were forced to do justice and to fight. Lord Walter Moyne was the British Minister of State in the Middle East, just about the highest ranking government official in the region. He was in the back seat of his car, pulling into his house in Cairo, Egypt, on November 6, 1944, with his driver, secretary, and a military aide with him. Two men with guns stopped the car in the driveway and ordered everyone not to move. One of the men shot the driver dead. The other leaned inside the vehicle and shot Lord Moyne three times at point-blank range. Then they jumped on bicycles and cycled off at high speed. Despite heroic efforts to save his life, Lord Moyne died later that evening. And the two men were caught by the police. They were members of Lehi, what the British called the Stern Gang, and in accordance with their determination to bring the fight for a Jewish state to the British, had made the decision to assassinate the British government's top official. It wasn't the first time they had tried to kill high-ranking leaders, but it was the first time they had succeeded. They hoped to demonstrate to the world that theirs was a just fight against British imperialism, against a foreign occupier who should not be ruling over the Yishuv, the Jewish community in Palestine, and they were prepared to take the fight outside Palestine. But Lord Moyne's assassination instead almost ended Zionism's push for a Jewish state right then and there. That's today's topic. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people, do everyone our share to redeem the world. Vladimir Jabotinsky once said that as one of our first conditions of equality, we Jews demand the right to have our own villains, exactly as other people have them. The Lehi are really easy Zionist villains because they're terrorists. They sound a lot like the terrorists that we know today, proclaiming their fight against Western colonialism, demanding that the foreign occupiers of their land get out, deeming anyone against them anywhere to be an enemy. They weren't the only ones carrying out violence against the British. Menachem Begin and his Irgun were also engaged in acts of terrorism, but the strategy was different, as were the tactics, and therefore it's possible, maybe, to discern a moral difference. In the view of both the Irgun and the Lehi, British control over Palestine was the proximate or even the outright direct cause of Jewish suffering. It's not hard to understand their fury. Millions of Jews were being murdered in Europe, and yet the world had turned its back on Jewish immigration. There was only one place on the globe for Jews to go where they could be safe, the Jewish homeland in Palestine. But the British White Paper in 1939 closed that door too, which prevented even the Jews of Palestine from rescuing their own in Europe. In this grave and perilous situation then, the view was that there could be only one possible solution, the end to the British foreign occupation and the creation of a Jewish state. With a Jewish state and a Jewish majority, the Jews can set their own immigration policies and throw open the doors for as many Jews as could be saved. It was a matter of historic Jewish dignity, of Jewish honor and fate, but most of all, of life itself. But even though the Irgun and the Lehi both came out of revisionist Zionism, they had differences. 
The Irgun was looking to embarrass the British, to make it impossible for them to provide security, to attack the institutions of the White Paper while avoiding attacks that would damage Britain's ability to wage war. And the Irgun was committed to keeping the body count as low as possible. Begin was trying to win over public opinion, not undermine the Jews' moral authority by indiscriminately killing people. In fact, a major tactic of the Irgun was to warn the British ahead of time when an attack was coming. They would call up the British police and tell them not to drive on a certain road because it was mined, or to evacuate the immigration office because it would be bombed in an hour. They oftentimes labeled their bombs too, like literally would put a sign on it that said, Bomb, don't come near. But the lackey was looking to exact revenge on the British, to bloody them so much that they would leave Palestine. It may sound like splitting hairs, but for the Irgun, you weren't the enemy because you were British. You were the enemy if you were part of the British mandate and carrying out the White Paper's policies of restricting Jewish immigration. But not so for the Lehi. If you were British at all, you were an occupier. And as an occupier, you were the enemy. And if you disagreed with the Lehi, whether British or Jew, you were also the enemy. They were utterly uncompromising. So since the British anywhere and everywhere were the mortal enemy of the Jews, any and all violence against them was justified in view of the Lehi. They had tried to assassinate the British High Commissioner in Palestine a couple of times, unsuccessfully, but causing a lot of mayhem in the process. Most of the Yishuv, including Begin and the Irgun, and of course, especially David Ben-Gurion, considered the Lehi to be a bunch of thugs and terrorists, even though they all shared the same rage against the British for refusing to rescue the Jews of Europe. The Lehi at this point was led by a trio of individuals, but one of them stood out as our main guy, Yitzhak Shamir. His bio is pretty similar to that of Begin, and he even succeeded Menachem Begin as Prime Minister of Israel in the 1980s. He was born in what is now Belarus, then Russia, in 1915, and like Begin got involved with the revisionist Zionist movement as a teenager. He arrived in Palestine in 1935, just before the Arab Revolt. Like Begin, Shamir tragically lost his family in the Holocaust. Both his parents and his two sisters were murdered. What's interesting is that Begin and Shamir seemed to differ in what they took from their personal tragedies. What Begin took was a fanatical obsession with preventing another Holocaust and with protecting and saving Jewish lives. Shamir, it seems, drew another lesson. He liked to tell a story that when his father found out about his imminent execution at the hands of the Nazis, he told them that his son, living in the land of Israel, would someday exact revenge. Now that story might well be apocryphal, but it's an illustrative explanation for Shamir's ruthlessness. Although both men employed violence, Menachem Begin was resolutely principled and fanatical about morality. Yitzhak Shamir seemed to be solely focused on destroying his enemies. And, I mean, I get it. It's hard to say he's not justified, given the trauma that he suffered. And his and Begin's background was shared by a great many of the fighters who ended up joining the Irgun and the Lehi in the 1940s. But the Lehi's viciousness had a price. It had nearly disastrous consequences for the Zionist project in Palestine. Yitzhak Shamir, as leader of the Lehi, was the brains behind the operation to assassinate Lord Moyne in 1944. Where Menachem Begin and the Irgun were against assassination and against attacking high-ranking British government officials, 
the Lehi considered them absolutely legitimate targets, even when they were outside of Palestine, like in Cairo, in Lord Moyne's case. Here's what Lord Moyne's assassin had to say. We are fighting the British government because it is bad. No calculations were made as to whether Lord Moyne was a good man or a bad man. It was considered only that he was the key man for Britain in governing the Middle East, and as such he is responsible for what is happening in Palestine. The reason for killing Lord Moyne is that it is a step towards forcing the British government to leave Palestine. You know, it's worth considering Leahy's point of view for a second. All revolutionary resistance movements wrestle with this kind of morality, strategy, and tactics. And make no mistake, the Lehi and the Irgun very much saw themselves as revolutionary resistance movements against their imperial occupier. Even Lord Moyne's military aide, who was in the car with him and surely feared his life was about to end, saw the legitimacy in the Lehi's attack. He condemned the Lehi, not for killing Moyne, but for killing the driver. That was just plain old murder, he said. But whether or not it was legitimate to kill Moyne, the assassination had huge consequences from both the British and from the rest of the Yishuv. First, let's take the British. As long as we have faith in our cause and uh, an unconquerable willpower, salvation will not be denied us. From the beginning, the Zionist movement had a crucial ally in the British government, Winston Churchill who at this point was Prime Minister, of course. That was him speaking before the U.S. Congress in 1942. Even though he couldn't always deliver what the Zionists wanted, Churchill was well known to favor the cause and to be a strong opponent of the White Paper. And because of that, he forgave a lot of the Jewish resistance, sympathetic to the notion that the Jews were desperately trying to claim the homeland which was promised them by the Balfour Declaration of 1917. But Lord Moyne was both a political ally and a close personal friend of Churchill, and the assassination shook him up badly. At the time, Churchill's opposition to the White Paper and his support for partitioning Palestine into two separate states, it was getting real traction. Having dropped partition during the Arab Revolt in the late 1930s, the British government was picking it up again, helped along by Churchill's stewardship. Birthday buddy Chaim Weitzman was of the mind that Britain would soon be prepared to peacefully terminate the White Paper and to push for the creation of a Jewish state. But after Moyne was killed, Churchill dropped partition. It would be almost three bloody years until it was picked back up again. Thus, the Moyne assassination cost the Jews a major opportunity, one that would almost certainly have gone in their favor in terms of territory and, most importantly, national sovereignty. And there was also the question of how the British should respond to the attack. Like with today's terrorism, it's tough to find an effective solution. In terms of direct retaliation, Britain didn't have many options. First of all, its military and police strength in Palestine was extremely low. Most soldiers were still fighting in Europe, and its intelligence gathering capabilities sucked. So one frequently discussed idea, which was to seize the Yishuv's illegal weapons, would have been impossible. Secondly, the Lehi was small, and its fighters easily blended into society and were well hidden. Trying to root them out would end up punishing the rest of the Yishuv, which wouldn't win the British any support. Churchill knew that the vast majority of the Yishuv, and certainly the Zionist leadership, hated the Lehi, so alienating them would have been counterproductive. Another option was to restrict Jewish immigration even further as punishment for the assassination, effectively leaving even more Jews at the mercy of the Nazis. 
but Churchill completely rejected this as being just the kind of harsh overreaction that the terrorists were looking for to gain public sympathy. And he was right. So in the end, the British government did not much. And they got a ton of criticism for it, for effectively allowing this small group of Jewish terrorists to assassinate a major government official without much consequence. It emboldened the Lehi to keep at it. Yet the British did have another way. It had an important strategic ally in Palestine that was opposed to the Lehi, David Ben-Gurion. Some 50 years now into the Zionist movement, its leaders would finally turn on each other in what amounted to the beginnings of a Zionist civil war. Both before and especially after the Moyne assassination in November of 1944, the British demanded that the Yishuv's leaders stop Jewish terrorism. Although everyone hated the Lehi, it was a little bit of a tough call to go after them. For many Jews, the Lehi was just the most extreme in standing up for the Jewish people, so they were still one of us in the fight against the British. The Yishuv's leaders didn't want to look like a bunch of narcs, you know? But after Moyne, the tide swiftly turned. Ben-Gurion argued that the risk of the British backlash had to be taken seriously, that the British weren't going to limit the repercussions to the Lehi, but would also come after the Haganah's weapons and leaders. It was time to cooperate with the British to wipe out the Lehi. Now, when I say there was a Zionist civil war, I don't mean that the Jews started killing each other. That's not what happened. Ben-Gurion's counterterrorism program meant identifying who were the terrorists and going after their livelihood kicking them out of their homes, firing them from their day jobs, but also, most controversially, handing them over to the British to be imprisoned. The idea was that the Haganah would track down the terrorists in hiding, send that info over the British, and then help the British police raid the apartment. They called this campaign La Saison des Chasses, French for the hunting season. Why it's in French and not Hebrew, that I couldn't tell you. But two of the people put in charge of carrying it out were our warrior gods from episode 47, Yigal Alon and Moshe Dayan. They chose a couple hundred men from the Haganah and the Palmach to carry out the campaign and set to work. So to give one example of how it worked, take Eliyahu Lincoln, a high-ranking Irgun commander based in Jerusalem. In December, Lincoln came out of hiding long enough to go for a walk, where he was tailed by a Haganah team. Several men surrounded him on Ben Yehuda Street, grabbed him from behind, and muscled him into a car where they took him to a British police station to turn him in. It was the British practice then to send the prisoners they deemed the most dangerous, like those from the Lehi and the Irgun, to a black site, a secret detention facility in Eritrea, which is in Africa. The British had several of these secret facilities all over Africa, and during the 1940s sent hundreds of Jewish fighters there. It was less about serving time and more about just keeping these people far away from Palestine, Pretty much everyone was released once Israel became a state. It will not surprise you to learn that there were a ton of escape attempts over the years. These were not the kind of people that sit still with the British, obviously. Eliyahu Lankin escaped to Ethiopia after about a year and ended up in Europe, where he continued conducting Irgun operations. He eventually became an officer in the Israeli army, served in the first Knesset, and was Menachem Begin's ambassador to South Africa in the 1980s. Now, if you were listening carefully just then, You'll notice that I said Eliyahu Lincoln was with the Irgun, not the Lehi. But the Jewish agency's deal with the British was supposed to be helping to eliminate the Lehi. So what's going on? Well, Ben-Gurion, ever the aggressive politician, 
saw that the hunting season could be used to kill a bunch of birds with one stone. And he went for it. So just to recap, the Zionist movement at this point has two major camps. You have the labor Zionists on the left, Ben-Gurion, the Jewish Agency, the Haggadah, the Palmach, and you have the revisionist Zionists on the right, Menachem Begin, the Irgun, and the Lehi. The Yishuv at this point was pretty close to a functioning state. They had an executive branch, that was the Jewish Agency, led by Ben-Gurion. They had a kind of legislature, the Zionist Congress, led by my birthday buddy, Chaim Weitzman. They had a substantial army, albeit illegally, the Haganah, and its special operations force, the Palmach. They had a powerful labor union, the Histadrut. They had city mayors, local council leaders, diplomats, political aides, even political parties. Mapai was the left-wing party, also headed by Ben-Gurion. Chatzohar was the main party of the right-wing revisionist Zionists. But it was the labor Zionists in power pretty much across the board. So if you're Ben-Gurion and the labor Zionists, the Lehi isn't your real challenge. It's just a couple hundred guys running around causing violence. Your real political opposition is the revisionist Zionists, Menachem Begin, and especially the Irgun. So every less Irgunnik in Palestine is one less person challenging your authority and weakening your power. So the hunting season operation, then, it provides the perfect cover for eliminating your political opponents, either by getting them arrested, shipped off to prison in Africa, or driving them so far underground that they can't surface. And that's exactly what Ben-Gurion did. He completely narked on the Irgun. And the British were happy to accept, since they hated the Irgun too. In fact, after the assassination of Lord Moyne, the Lehi decided to lay low for a while to keep the heat off. So the hunting season, in reality, became a Jewish agency operation to get rid of the Irgun. I mean, you gotta give it to him. Ben-Gurion was brilliant. He used the operation to placate the British, keep the attention off the Haganah, get rid of his political rivals, and boost his own power and authority in Palestine, all at the same time. The British could barely keep up with how many Irgun fighters the Haganah was turning over. Of course, you see where this is going, and why it quickly became a kind of civil war. The Jews are supposed to be united with each other against the British, not selling each other out while the Holocaust, don't forget, is still claiming millions of lives in Europe. There was a profound sense of perfidy. The author Bruce Hoffman writes about one example, when the Jewish agency had the British police Yaakov Meridor, one of Begin's Irgun deputies. Meridor recalled that as the police led him out of his apartment in front of his family, he spotted a Haganah member standing by the door. This man was one of my people, he said, of my faith, of my flesh. He had not been bribed to do this job. That was what hurt most. Every society has its degenerates, but this was the depths of degeneration. This was betrayal. Meridor was also sent to a detention camp in Africa, also escaped, and also went on to be a member of the Knesset and a minister in Begin's government in the 1980s. Now, Menachem Begin was, above all else, a Jew's Jew. For him, the highest moral calling was Jewish fraternity and loyalty. He was beyond livid with Ben-Gurion for all this. But because of his morality, he also refused to allow the Irgun to retaliate against the Haganah in any way. It was a lifelong, absolutely unbreakable line for him. Jews do not turn on other Jews in any circumstance. That's going to have important implications later on again in 1948. 
But for now, it meant that the Civil War of 1945 was prevented from descending into violence because Begin all but tied the Irgun's hands. The Civil War, he said, was only one-sided. But still, the situation was really bad. It's true that the Yishuv generally did not support the terrorism of the Lehi and the Irgun. But when the British started arresting all these guys with the help of the Jewish agency, well, that did not sit well with the ordinary men and women. Instead of eliminating the Irgun, they were just getting more popular with each new arrest. The chief rabbi in Palestine was against it. Even the Haganah wasn't excited about the operation. Moshe Dayan carried it out like a good soldier, but he also didn't sign up to go after his fellow Jews. Some Haganah fighters were even kicked out for refusing to obey these orders. Even the British, ironically, turned against the hunting season once they figured out what was going on. On the one hand, they didn't think the Jewish agency was doing enough to help them arrest the real terrorists, like the Lehi. And on the other hand, they weren't really interested in being Ben-Gurion's Luca Brazzi against his political opponents, either. That's a Godfather reference, if you missed it. It's not Jewish. In 1945, March, Lord Moyne's two assassins were hanged in Cairo, singing Hatikva as the nooses were placed around their necks. It seems that with their deaths, the hunting season ran out of steam. It was definitely a blow to the Lehi and the Irgun, cementing Ben-Gurion's power and strengthening the Haganah. He appeased Winston Churchill and the British just enough to prevent any major reprisals against the Yishuv. But in doing so, Ben-Gurion also opened up a simmering rift between the Zionist factions, failed to destroy the Irgun, and left a trail of moral conflict and bad blood that lasted for decades amongst all involved. Like the ancient kings of Israel, Ben-Gurion did enormous good for his people. But he also sometimes, like this, was a real jackass. Between Lord Moyne's assassination and the six months or so of the hunting season, the British were really cluing in to the Yishuv's unending and entirely justifiable fury with the status quo. The Jewish people being exterminated in Europe, Palestine closed off for rescue, the Jewish state not coming to fruition. But the British also couldn't give in to the terrorists by changing the status quo, so partition was now off the table as was continuing to work effectively with the Jewish agency. What had started in 1944 to move in a positive direction for the Jews became by the middle of 1945 an intractable conflict that the British were stuck with. What looks like a very short time period between 1945 and Israeli independence in 1948 was in actuality three very long and uncertain years, all because of this one assassination. Two months after the hunting season flamed out, the great conflict in Europe came to an end in May of 1945 with the surrender of Germany. Palestine had survived the threat of Nazi invasion. But let's not mistake that for victory. Amongst the 50 million dead in Europe were 6 million Jews, and aside from the unimaginable horror of it, it was a huge blow to the Zionist movement. These millions of Jews were the ones the Zionist movement had set out to rescue back when it was conceived in the late 1800s. This was one of the two roots of our Zionist tree, the millions of Jews in Eastern Europe and Russia whose lives were under threat. These were the Jews whom the Zionist movement not only planned to get to Palestine, but needed to build the Jewish homeland there. As much as the British and the Arabs screamed and yelled about the influx of Jews, only a few hundred thousand had managed to come in the last few decades. All the rest were supposed to come when the Jewish homeland would be created. But now, even if the Jews got their state, there was the worry that there wouldn't be enough people to build it. 
To say nothing of the profound sense to this day that the Yishuv's leaders failed to do enough to rescue the Jews. Given the enormity of the war, that may not be entirely in a fair perspective, but it's still there. So all in all, although Palestine survived the war, most of the world's Zionist Jews did not. And those that did survive, they had nowhere to go. Held up at displaced persons camped in Europe, Palestine was of course a natural destination and a place where hundreds of thousands of them wanted to go to begin rebuilding their lives. But even with the war's end, the British held to the White Paper's restrictions, refusing to allow more than a few survivors into Palestine. Lord Moyne's assassination and the hunting season had done nothing to improve the situation. Menachem Begin made it clear that the Irgun's insurrection against the British mandate was still very much open for business. Menachem Begin, as angry as he was at Ben-Gurion, always maintained that eventually Ben-Gurion would come around, that he would have to realize that the only way to get a Jewish state would be to join with the Irgun in waging war against the British. With hundreds of thousands of survivors still in Europe, the Jewish emergency wasn't yet over. They had to come to Palestine, which meant that the British had to be driven out. And Begin was right. By the fall of 1945, Ben-Gurion realized the futility of continuing to work with the British and declared that the Haganah was joining the revolt. Where just a few months earlier the Haganah and the Irgun and the Lehi were locking horns during the hunting season, in October 1945 the three groups united to create the Jewish resistance movement. They would carry out a number of effective and spectacular operations, including the most infamous terrorist attack of this era the bombing of the King David Hotel in 1946. That's next time. The Heathrow See you later.